Church, if you have your Bible, we're going to return back to John 17 this morning. And uh, we're going to look at verses 9 through 19 specifically. So I'm just going to draw our attention to this. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Jesus says, I am praying for them. Them is the church, the disciples, those who God has given to him. I am praying for them, and I am not praying for the world, but I am for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, which they, uh, so that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction." that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they, may, um, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the, word has, the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that, they be take, that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may be sanctified in the truth. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, Thanks be to God indeed. Hey, um, can I get the last, uh, the last verse there of in Christ alone back on the screen? No power in hell, no fear in life. No power in hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I stand. Could not be a more timely hymn for us to sing this morning in light of the fact that today we are going to talk about the power to stand. The power to remain in Christ. The power to know that we are his and His alone, He keeps us, and He protects us, and He guards us. Today we're going to talk about the topic of sanctification that is so latent right here in the middle of John uh, Jesus' prayer, the high priestly prayer, that a large part of what Jesus devotes this final prayer, I told you this last week, that the, this prayer itself is... Um, it is the most substantive prayer, I think, in the Bible for sure. And, and as we talked about last week, that the, as we look at this, this prayer, um, and we looked at it from a high level, we, we, re, we ended with the point that because Jesus prayed for us, we must utilize the discipline of prayer as a key means to see the glory of God and the mission of God and be known to the world. Well, there's one other thing in this text that we want to make sure we draw out of. That our sanctification is a key means by which God would make his glory known to the world. That him keeping us and that him guarding us and that him sanctifying us in the, in the truth as we've seen here in this text are all key parts of God's process of making his glory known to the world, to making his mission known to the world. So in this prayer, we see so much of God's own heart for your sanctification, for my sanctification, for our ongoing standing and being able to stand in the power of Christ. It's, it's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. 
Now, if you don't know what the word sanctification is, it's, it's simple. Let me try to make it as simple, draw it down into a very simple terms. All we're talking about is that, that ongoing transformation, right, that happens after conversion, that happens in our lives after conversion. It's the change in a believer's life um, that, that happens as a result of, of being made his. Amen. Now, we want to talk about this and we want to think about this well because change in our lives, this topic of change has been, it's, it's really sometimes misunderstood in the Christian life in so many different parts of the Christian life because what happens oftentimes, and we'll see this today in our text, or at least we're going to draw it out, is that we blur the lines. Justin talked about this in Sunday school if you are here this morning. We blur the lines too quickly between our justification and what Christ has accomplished for us and what Christ is forming in us as a result of that justification. We can blur the lines between our justification and our sanctification. And, and, and if we don't keep the, the right distinctions in place, we don't keep the right mindset in place, what we end up doing in the Christian life is that we end up creating kind of this quasi-works-based Christianity whereby really what we are saying through our good works is that we are justifying ourselves before our God. And then we're proving that we're Christians. You've ever heard someone say that, prove you're a Christian? Well, and the reality is we are not called to prove we are Christians. We are called to display the glory of God through our righteousness. And that's a very big difference between the two. That's why our sanctification is important. Um, and so we can point our fingers to other groups of people. You know, we're in the reform camp, and we like to think we have our, our reform street cred and everything. We got, our, we got our doctrine down, justification by faith alone, yes. But we can fall into this trap just as easily as other people because we can tend to time, make our works and our righteousness and our activity and our behavior and our convictions and, our, and all these different things that go along with the Christian life, which are good things a lot of times in the Christian life. We can make them a matter of, like, of, of, of us proving that we're saved or earning our salvation and that's that's not really what the bible tells us and so when we talk about this topic of sanctification this morning here's the main idea that i want to tease out this morning that the purpose of our sanctification all right the purpose of that ongoing transformation after our conversion the purpose of our sanctification is that the church in all ages just pay real close and lean into this idea the church in all ages would be a testament of the redeeming love of God, who through the work of the Spirit continues to produce fruit and lasting fruit on his choice vine. We saw that in John 15, right? That choice vine that God has created and that we himself, he produces fruit in our lives. is, is his work to do this. And it's, it's one of the ways God displays his glory because he wants us to be a testament of his glory, of his redeeming love through the fruit that he bears in our lives. And so we're going to talk about what does it mean that God's the one who produces that fruit in our lives, and then what does it mean that we are participating in bearing some of that fruit. Uh, sometimes we, don't, we get those things kind of mixed up, and, and hopefully we can come to some conclusion or some ideas or better clarity on that this morning. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to really, from a high level, talk about those verses I just read from verses 9 through 19, so you can put your eyes there. And I just want to tease out a couple of things that this passage says about sanctification that I think will help us give us a, a framework, or a, a foundation. And then we're going to go into, like, what is sanctification? Like, what is it and what is it not? Okay? Um, so let's just talk about the first thing we see in this in verse 9, roughly through 11 or so. We see that the ground for our sanctification, the ground for our transformation, is God's redeeming love. 
Okay, where I get that? Verse 9, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom he has given me, for they are yours. So there is a distinction, as we noted last week, and it's a hard distinction, but there's a distinction between the way God feels, if you want to use that word, although be careful with that, right? Um, but what the God's affections, if you will, for his people versus those who are not his people. And that this begins, this idea of our sanctification must begin. I am praying for them, Jesus says. That should give you great encouragement. That you have a Savior, we talked about last week, who is praying for you. And why does he pray for you? Because you're his. From the foundations of the world, God made you his, and Jesus has made you his by his work for you that you and i are god's own children we are adopted children and friends i can't fathom the depth of god's redeeming love any better than that like that is just fantastic and we saw last week last week that as we said a minute ago that visited disparity between what god god's concern for the world versus god's concern for his church and so if you want to understand the first and most important part of the work of sanctification, you've got to understand your God's. And it's because of his son that you're his. And like we saw in verse 11, he keeps you in his, like he's praying that God keep them in your name. That word name is very, very important, that your identity is there. We talked about this in our men's group on Thursday night, this idea of sanctification and how important it is that the antecedent to anything in us that says put to death those things therefore in you, like in Colossians chapter 3, is that we remember the antecedent is because you are in Christ. That keep them in your name, that, that, that a name is very, very important. Whose name you are says a whole lot about you. What identity you hold to says a lot about you during his earthly ministry jesus kept his disciples in his word it says there in verse 11 or so why because he wants them to be united and where is their unification come from not in uniformity of behavior and action but in identity in the name of god in the name of christ we are united. That's how God keeps us. That's why. Because it reminds us that the ground of our transformation, that if we want to see change in our life, it has to begin and it has to end with who Jesus is and what he has accomplished. And friends, this is what we got to make sure we say before we move on to the next idea here. The overwhelming commitment that God has for your and my continual growth and sanctification cannot be overstated. And I forget that way too often. That God is, even on my weakest moments, God is radically committed to my ongoing transformation. That he's praying for it. He's keeping me. He's guarding me. And that root is, of course, in his redeeming love for his people. Amen. The second thing we see in this passage, uh, briefly, is the power of our sanctification is God's preserving power. Like that is it. It's his love that is the ground, but the power for it is his preserving power. It, it says there in verse 11, he keeps us. Jesus said, I kept them while I was with them, but now I'm calling you to keep them. I'm praying to you, Father, to keep them. He, he, he guarded them, verse 12. He gives us the word there in verse 14. Um, and that, again, at the end of the day, that God would be the, and in verse 17 is most important, right? 
They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Verse 17, sanctify them in the truth. Who is doing the sanctifying? God. Not you and I. God is doing the sanctifying work. And that's really, really important. We're going to tease all this stuff out here and try to make it clear here in a minute. But what Jesus is saying is he's not praying that they would sanctify themselves. He's praying that God will continue to sanctify them. That God's commitment that began in eternity past would continue on to the completed purposes of God's design since eternity past. This is what Jesus is praying for. He's praying for for his people. So it's abundantly clear that God is the active agent in our sanctification and that all the members of the Trinity are playing a part of that, right? Think about everything that is going on in the members of the Trinity that have caused you to be saved. The Father's decree to, to, to say, give you to His Son before the foundations of the world. The Son's active obedience to save you by giving His life as an atonement for your sin and raising to life and give you new life, and the work of the Spirit that's the active, ongoing work to preserve you. Friends, that is delight. There is nothing more delightful than that. Absolutely, fundamentally, the most essential thing that you want. If you want to see change in your life, and I'm speaking to myself as much as I'm speaking to anyone else here, because I have my own battles, Lord knows. I have to remember whose I am and who's the one who's keeping me. I'm not in danger, I'm not in danger of losing. And that's a really, really, really big point. I might struggle and I might unnecessarily fight with sin and various parts of sin in my life, but I am in no danger because of the redeeming work of God of falling finally away. Third thing we see in this text, before we get into the meat of what we're going to talk about this morning is, there's a content and a context to this sanctification. Look at verses 15. We saw it a minute ago, verse 15 through 19. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, so here's the context, but that you keep them from the evil one. Did you notice what the context is? The context, and as painful as this is, is that you are right where you're supposed to be by God's design, and he's using this very context, this very place, this very time, this very season to sanctify you. What he is doing, though, in this context is keeping you from the evil one. Amen. He's keeping you from the final corruption of the evil one. You can see this in Job. You can see this in all kinds of places in the Bible, that even though Job himself, who had to get permission from God to go and, and, and persecute Job and to really basically destroy Job's life from one end of the spectrum to the other, pull every thread he possibly could, what happened? What, 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 did, what did Satan tell God? He says, well, I'll tell you, if you take all these things away from him, he's going to curse you and die. And what does he finally do? He does not, does he? Now, Job has some problems if you read through there, and he has some whiny fits here and there, and he, he misses the point. There is no doubt about it. So this is not about Job's righteousness. This is about God's ability to keep Job. If you read Job any other way, then you're reading Job wrong. This is God keeping Job, not Job keeping himself. That's, that's, where, that's where the enemy fails. He puts all the attention on you and puts all the attention on me, and he gets us to take the attention off of God, the keeper of our faith, the keeper of our salvation, the keeper of that work of redemption. So that's the context of it, right? The world who hates the truth and hates the church, we see this everywhere in our world today. 
They hate everything that has to do with God's design. We see it increasingly in our world, but this is the context God has placed us in. And it is suffering. It is not easy. Christians who want the easy believism life are not looking at the true work of God through Jesus. But there's a content. I think you can probably see easily there. Again, verse 17, what is the content? Sanctify them, what? In the truth, your word is truth. We talked about that this morning again in Sunday school. Just was the nature of God's word and how do we stand on it and have more assurance of it. But in a sum total, it is this, that the sufficiency of God's scriptures are the only deposit of truth that we have. Like you and I can muster around doing all kinds of things, trying to figure out and understand the world better, and, and, and there's nothing wrong with that. But ultimately, the defining truth and, and, and ways in which we understand and interpret the world we live in is going to come through God's self-revelation of himself, through his word, and namely through his son. That's how we understand the world. This is the content and context of our sanctification. So we saw that the, the ground for our, again, just a reminder, the ground of our sanctification is what? It's God's redeeming love. The, the, the power of our sanctification is God's preserving work. And then the, I'm sorry, the, yeah, the power of that. And then the context and context of our, uh, content of our sanctification is God, is the world, but God's word. Amen. Now, having seen that in the text, now let's talk a little bit about what does this mean for the ongoing work of, of sanctification in our lives? I just want to spend the rest of this time this morning just thinking about what does it mean that we are sanctified? Or what does it look like? Well, here's a few things to kind of whet your appetite here. Here's Louis, Louis Gutberkoff, a uh, great theologian uh, from the early 20th century. Um, to me, the, my favorite of all the systematic theologies out there. Here's what he says. This is his definition of sanctification. It's the gracious and continuous operation of the Holy Spirit by which he purifies the sinner, renews his whole nature in the image of God, and enables us to perform good works. Let me say that again. It's the gracious and continuous operation of the Holy Spirit by which he, the Holy Spirit, purifies the sinner, renews his whole nature in the image of God, and therefore enables us to perform good work. So do you see the, the dual thing that's happened? There's kind of a paradox there, right? There is the work, the ongoing and continuous work of God to produce and to change. It's, a, it's an inside-out change um, in the life of the believer. It's not an outside-in change. Him renewing us and making us and conforming us back to the image of Christ. Therefore, we are restoring us back to that um, Eden, if you will, right? That's what we are called to, that's what God is doing through Jesus. And then, therefore, our good works flow out of that so that we might be a display to the workmanship of God, what we see in Ephesians chapter 2. We'll look at that here in a minute. Our, one of the confessions we hold to here at Grace Church, the Second London Confession, chapter 13, paragraph 1, says this about sanctification. Those who are united to Christ and effectually called and regenerated have a new heart, so inside, and a new spirit created in them through the power of Christ's death and resurrection. Therefore, that's what we talked about in that last verse of uh, in Christ alone. It's the power of God in which we stand. So these things are created within us, and it goes on. They are also further sanctified, really and personally, through the same power by His Word and Spirit dwelling in them. The dominion of the whole body of sin is destroyed. The various evil desires that arise from it are more and more weakened and put to death. 
At the same time, those who are called, those called and regenerate, are more and more enlivened and strengthened in, their sa- in all saving graces so that they practice true holiness without, without which no one will see the Lord. I love that. So comprehensive. You just see it right here. It's so clear. Just breaking it down. It is the work of the, of the heart and the spirit within us through the death and resurrection of Jesus. So there's an inside. You've got you to get inside. Well, I can't get inside, can I? I need something divine, something supernatural to get on the inside. And therefore, then that continual sanctification through the word and spirit, and therefore taking dominion over our bodies, destroying the power of sin in our lives, and therefore being alive and strengthened by the saving graces continually so that we might see the Lord. Here's the most simple way of putting it, and it's the title of my sermon, Redemption Applied. Sorry I put you through all that just to tell you that. That's all sanctification is. It's redemption applied. It's God applying the work of redemption to you and I. That's it. And, and, and it's, the, it's the work of God through the agency of the Holy Spirit to then produce good fruit in us. Now, why does all that help us? Well, first of all, because it reminds us that our sanctification, as I said earlier at the very beginning, is not justification. These are not the same thing. And it's too quickly blurred. Again, going back to Louis Burkhoff, the legal act, justification, he defines it as this, the legal act of God by which he declares the sinner righteous on the basis of the perfect righteousness of Christ. Whose righteousness? Christ's righteousness. Not yours. Christ's righteousness. It's the legal act by which he declares the sinner righteous. It affects the state of the sinner, not the condition, if you will. Our state before God is made right because of what Christ has accomplished. It takes place outside the sinner in the tribunal, as they say, tribunal of God and removes the guilt and as an act is the complete and once and for all of all time. Let me say that again. It removes the guilt of sin and is an act that is complete at once and for all time. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. Sorry, I didn't have this marked in my Bible, but give me a second here and I'll get there. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. This is the ministry of reconciliation. Here's what it says. For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's justification. It's an objective act outside of us. Sanctification is that which takes place, the supernatural work of play that takes place in us. That's removing that pollution of sin that has been, the power of sin has been destroyed in our lives. And it's a continuous and lifelong process. Do you see the difference between the two? You can't be sanctified without justification, okay? So don't hear me wrong here. And, and your sanctification points to your justification. But they are not linked in the sense of the, the, the standing we have between us and God. Our standing with us and God is only and always will only be Jesus. And so this sanctification consists of two parts. I've already kind of touched on it there. It's the one, gradual removal of the pollution and corruption of sin over our human nature. So that's one aspect of the sanctification is that gradual removal of the pollution and corruption of sin of the human nature. And two, it's the gradual development of the new, law, new life that is consecrated to God. It's a both-and, right? It's a turning away from and a turning to. 
That's what we always say. When you, when you think about repentance, you got to think about repentance as both a, it's a, it's a, it's a two-way it's a two-way thing, right? It's, it's, a, it's a turning away from something that has polluted me and something that has corrupted me, and it's a turning to something that's giving me new life. And of course, we know that to be only Jesus. So then the work of sanctification is always related to our repentance. So consider, consider that for a second. The second thing that I want us to notice, though, in terms of understanding the nature of sanctification is that it's not justification, but it is the supernatural work of God that we cooperate with. That's hard, right? That's where we get stumble up sometimes. Like, where is the difference between where God begins and where I end? And there's always this tension. There's always debates in the church about this. But sanctification is, and I just want to say it this simply, the supernatural work of God in which we cooperate. And I've tried to say it that way for a very specific purpose. Again, I hate to be a dead, beat a dead horse here. Again, Burkhoff's helpful. By the way, again, just if you ever want a systematic theology, this is the one to get. And he's got a little small reader as well that I think is even better. Here's what he says. While sanctification is decidedly a supernatural work of God, he says, the believer can and should cooperate in it by a diligent use of the means which he has placed at their disposal. Did you see that? It is decidedly a supernatural work of God, but the believer can and should cooperate in it by the diligent use of the means that God has placed at his disposal. So when you put these two things together, what we're trying to get at and tease out in terms of the nature of sanctification is that sanctification is entirely the work of the Holy Spirit, divinely applying redemption to our lives. But it is progressively realized through our cooperation with the Spirit, with the Word of God. This is something that's vitally important. We don't place a lot of attention here anymore in our church, in, in the church today. I don't, I don't hear a lot about this in preaching today, in, in, especially in general evangelical worlds. The Second London Confession in the second paragraph of that same chapter we talked about on sanctification helps us a little bit in this. It says, the sanctification extends throughout the whole person, though it is never completed in this life. Wow, thank goodness, right? In terms of like, I can look at my worst day and I just know that, I, okay, God's not done with me yet. Some corruption remains in every part. From this arises a continual and irreconcilable war with the desires of the flesh against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh in this war. The remaining corruption may greatly prevail for a time, yet through the continual supply of strength from the sanctifying spirit of Christ, the regenerate part overcomes. To the saints, so the saints grow in grace, perfecting holiness in the fear of God, they pursue a heavenly life in the gospel obedience to all the commands that Christ as the head and king has given them in his word. So did you see what it did there? It's, the guarantee is this. It's a constant work of the Holy Spirit in our life. It's not going to be completed in this time until Jesus returns. And you and I are to play a part in the obedience to Christ's commands. That's just very clear in Scripture. So when we say that it's all the work of sanctification is all of God, we need to think about 1 Thessalonians 5.23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. It's one of our benedictions we say here, by the way. May the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. So do, do, do you see what, that, what Paul is saying there? He's saying to us, this is, this is what he's praying for you, just like Jesus prayed over. He prayed for the Thessalonian church. He's praying like Jesus prayed for his church, that God would completely sanctify you. 
This is his work. It's completely his work. Completely means God's entire work through the work of the Spirit in our lives. God, again, I cannot say this enough. We've seen it here in chapter 17, verse 11 and 12. He is in the keeping business. That's what sanctification is. He's in the keeping business. But what, what is meaningful then about my cooperation? Do I need to cooperate? Might be another question. Well, let's talk about, first of all, why cooperation is necessary, why it is meaningful. Let's look at, consider 2 Corinthians. We're looking at a lot of scripture this morning. 7 1, verse 1. Since we have these promises, right? So, antecedent, always look for those since therefore, those things always tell you what the antecedent of the command is, right? Since we have these promises, promises of what? Jesus' life given for us dying for sinners, rescuing us from death and hell. Since we have these promises, 2 Corinthians 7 says, beloved, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of the body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Did you just see that? So now we're to play a part in bringing holiness to completion in our lives, cooperating, if you will, in the fear of God, why? Because of the antecedent of the promise that Jesus has already accomplished for us in our justification. Do you see why we can't blur the two? Why it's dangerous if we blur the two? It's very dangerous. Hebrews 12, 14 says, Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So then, the meaningfulness of our part of the sanctification process, of our cooperation, is necessary because it brings holiness to completion right? That's what we seem to see here in this text. The promises of God cause us to truly and freely grieve the remaining defilement of sin in our lives. So that's something the believer should always have as part of life. Like, like frustration and grief over sin is actually a grace because you hate it and you should hate it. I should hate it. And it's meaningful, our cooperation is meaningful because our striving is connected to us seeing Jesus vividly. It's what it says there, right? We will, even when we saw up there in, the, in, in Second London Confession, paragraph 2 and 3, that on which no one will see the Lord, like we, get to, we are called to see the Lord, but we see it as we continue to cooperate in the ongoing work of holiness in our lives. Again, this is the paradox of the Christian life sometimes, and it's tough, Right? But let's just, I always tell people, like, let, can we just let the Word say what the Word says? And all the mystery that's in between the, 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 the text is, um, is all part of God working it out, right? I, I just have to stay there, right? Now, you might be asking yourself, so then, then all right, I, I see what you're saying, Pastor. So what happens if I don't cooperate? Like, if I fail to cooperate... Does something happen? And in and, and one sense, no, because your justification is sure in Christ. So that's what we want to make sure we always stand on that truth. Like if you don't cooperate, because there are going to be seasons, we all know them, that we don't cooperate. We, don't, we, we fail, we turn, we, we trust something else more visibly or experientially for our trust. And we put our hope in that. We lean on that. For, and whatever those things may be, they all may be a little different for every one of us in the word. But we but we still must cooperate, and I don't think it's really a choice as to whether or not a Christian actually does ultimately cooperate. Right? No, we really don't have a choice as to whether or not we cooperate. Not because our salvation is hanging in the balance, but because 
Um, to, to, to not cooperate in, in, for the Christian is to give sin permission to rule over us. That's, that's all it is. And no Christian should ever give sin permission to rule over us. A truly converted Christian will demonstrate a holy inclination to mortify the remaining sin in their lives, in my life. We will fall away from time to time, yes, but we will also grieve and seek to fight nonetheless. There's a cooperation, and it's vital to our lives. Why? Because we will contend with sin all of our our lives. Uh, You know it, I know it. We will contend with sin all of our lives. The best men you know, the best women you know, continually have to confess their sins. Not because they have to, the atonement needs to be reapplied, but because they have, had, they have had the atoning work of Jesus Christ applied to them. We, will, we are created for good works to show off the workmanship of God. I want to go to Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 10, for a moment, just to point out this idea here. It's a passage we've all read many times. We're going to pick up actually in verse um, 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages... He might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in, the ki- in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. But for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared for beforehand that we should walk in them. So our good works are extremely important. So we are cooperating, and I don't think the true Christian could ever not cooperate, even if our cooperation looks a little shaky from time to time. In fact, I would say it looks a little shaky a lot of the time. But we nonetheless fight. And that's really the application I want to just sit on just for a second. Do you know you're in war? I don't want to like channel my inner John Piper here this morning, but I can if you want me to. This is war. It's war for your heart. It's war for your family. It's war for your marriage. It's war for your church. It's war for, it's war. And the war is fought not anywhere else except on the front lines of our sanctification. That's where the war is fought. And that's where the victory will be had. All the world may think that they're gaining the ground and the world may look all kinds of weird things and we don't know what this place is going to look like a decade from now. But God does. Because the the war he is fighting is in you and me. And in the preaching of the gospel. And so friends, I would say, if you want to ask the question whether or not a Christian can fail to cooperate, I'd say that if a Christian is not concerned for a consistent pattern of sin or makes little of sin consistently in their lives, they should probably be concerned. Right? 
Because I think at some point we see in these texts, he put all these things together, that when God, what God says he's going to do, he's going to do it. And so if he says he saved us by his grace and by nothing, with no works alone, but then the next breath says, and you are created by the, in the workmanship of God for good works, it tells me that when God starts something, he finishes it. So how do we cooperate with the Spirit of God in us? What's involved in that? Well, we saw in one of the quotes earlier that he, we, we cooperate with him by taking, making use of the graces in which he has provided for us. That's what Louis Bocroft said earlier. And what are the graces that God has provided for us? We say it often here, but I think it's worth saying and reminding ourselves of these things. It's, it's not old hat for us. Like Christians get too easily bored with the graces of God, the ordinary graces of God. We're always thinking we need something else. We need some other activity, some other outreach program, some other, some other thing to do. But really, we are not called to anything other than the ordinary means of grace. And what are they? Preached word. Sacraments of God through the Lord's Supper and baptism. Of course, that all necessitates what? The gathered body of Christ on the Lord's day not forsaking those things. Like, if you think this is just like the pastor's um, kind of like hot button issue, his little, you know, no, it's, it's all over scripture because, it, because at the end of the day, it's not about just holding us to some uh, begrudging uh, rhythm, but we need the church. We need the preached word. We need the sacraments. We need private and family worship through word and prayer on a regular basis. We need those things. Why? Because our hearts are shaped and formed by them. And how do these things serve us? Well, they serve us because it grows our affections for the love of God. I've never met a Christian who's not plugged in the church who's, who, 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 they may say on the outside that they love God, but to see their depth of God's love has always been much more rich and, 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 and um, visible when they're connected to the church and when they're connected to the preaching of God's word, when they're connected to the discipline of the local church. It also shapes us when we take advantage of these disciplines, of these, I'm sorry, of these graces. Uh, It shapes us more in the conformity to God's law and his standards. Listen, the more casual we have gotten with the church today, has made us more casual with the law of God and the commands of God because we're unfamiliar with them. No wonder our world and no, many, no wonder many Christians are faltering on the same issues when it comes to the issues of, of sexuality and gender identity. And I mean, again, we're, we're, that seems to be the thing today, right? But no wonder we're faltering on these things because we're not familiar with the God who designed us and you taking advantage of the means he's given us. no. These means service in that way. They also serve to lead us to the final aim of our life. And what is the final aim of your life, friend? God's glory. If you're a Christian, that's the only thing. That's the only thing. So all of this serves to fortify the work of Christ in us, right? That's what we're called to do. But I would be remiss if I didn't stop for a second and before we close and say, but beware the dangers to our sanctification. And there, and there are many. There are many dangers we face in our sanctifications. I, I put in here many dangers, toils, and snares. There's really two large categories we can put these dangers down under. You can put it under the umbrella of legalism 
and under the umbrella of license. Legalism and license. I think Tim Keller wrote a book about this. Uh, Prodigal Son, I think is what it is. Prodigal God. I think it's very helpful to understand those realities. Legalism, on its face, simply defined as the mixing, the substance of our justification with the fruit of our living. It's a danger for our sanctification. It's a danger for yourself spiritually to mix our justification with the fruit of our living. It's, it's a vision for uh, perfectionism in the Christian life. And we've got to be very, very careful because it creeps in at all kinds of places. Here's where it creeps in. Self-righteousness. And self-righteousness sounds like, like you've met that self-righteous person. You're, you, can, you tend to find that person, but perhaps you are self-righteous too and you just don't know it. Self-righteousness is self-me-focused, my accomplishments, my habits, my righteousness. That's what self-righteousness is. It's replacing the imputed righteousness of Christ in justification with self-made righteousnesses and various kinds of pietisms. Right? I, I do this, I don't do that. I have this rhythm. I do it better than you. You're always comparing yourself to the other person, what that person's doing versus what you're doing. That is self-righteousness. And if it's done in the context of the church, it's a dangerous thing to your soul, friend. Very dangerous thing. But legalism also does something on the opposite side of the coin. It, it, it can kind of create what we call this persistent sense of guilt. Now, you might go, well, isn't guilt a good thing? Well, let's talk about that for a second. It sounds pious. Persistent guilt sounds pious. It's this, but it's this self-deprecating. It sounds so self-deprecating, but in reality, the persistent guilt is radically self-focused and self-aggrandizing. It's, it's really focused on me. It, it, it has this air of false humility. That's equally self-righteousness. It's... It's got an air of repentance, but it lacks the proper, as I've said already, antecedent to our repentance, which is Christ. Because if our guilt only leads us to despair on how we failed to meet a certain standard, we're not focusing on Jesus. We're not seeing Jesus. And that's not repentance. No, true repentance has the antecedent and always looking at Jesus, but persistent guilt always drives us to ourselves, always drives us to our failures, and it never actually gets us to see Jesus. So focus is on the self-failure, and therefore our despair, being, uh, our despair in being more disciplined in areas that we'd like to be more disciplined. See, there's a difference between a contrite heart and a guilty heart. A contrite heart, one, or both of them acknowledge the remaining sin in their lives. So both of them are doing that, guilt and contrition. But one focuses on me, i.e., persistent guilt, and what I must do differently, and on the, and the other focuses on Christ and what he has done to adopt us into the family of God and the Spirit of God doing that ongoing work of birthing new life in me. See the difference between re guilt-driven repentance versus contrite-driven repentance? It's important. So legalism is a very dangerous thing for the Christian because it creeps in in all kinds of places. I bet all of us fall into these categories at some point or the other throughout the week. The end result is legalism is, is good old-fashioned self-reliance. Good old-fashioned self-reliance. In the end, it's, this is all, it's what it's all about. Legalism seeks to establish a self-made standing before God and before the church, before the world. And the work of sanctification can often be so easily supplanted by self-justification if we're not careful. 
And so we must be careful not to blur the lines between our justification in Jesus, what he's accomplished, that objective reality, outside reality, what he's accomplished for us, to that subjective reality of the Holy Spirit continuing to produce new life in us through sanctification. It's a real and pervasive danger. It's like, like we said in John 15, like it's the vine that's producing the fruit. But when we get this backwards, when we get this turned around, what we are end up doing is we just become people who are trying to staple fruit onto the vine. We can't staple fruit onto the vine. You ever done that before? You ever tried to take a, a piece of fruit and just try to like tape it to the vine or staple it back up to the tree? Like do that. See what happens. The next day it's going to be really disgusting. Or a couple days from now it's going to be really disgusting. It's, just, it's not going to work. It's rot. It's nothing but pure rot. And sanctification that gets turned around through legalism ends up being just pure rot too. But license is also a very great danger. And when we talk about license, what we're talking about is we're talking about that divorcing of the gospel from the law. That's what license is. License is divorcing the gospel law. It's setting the law of God against the grace of God. I hear Christians do this all the time. The law of God is, well, Jesus is, you know, he's already fulfilled the law. Yes, he has fulfilled the law for you, but he also establishes the law in his own righteousness so that you and I would love and delight in the law ourselves, just like the psalmist does in 119, Psalm 119. So when we're talking about license, that divorcing the gospel from the law, it comes in, I think, in at least two ways. It comes in first, the diminishing of the severity of sin. So we see this in Romans chapter 6, 1 through 3. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? And Paul says without bait, with, with, with absolutely no stutter in his, in his breath, by no means, exclamation point, hard stop. How can we who died to sin live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? If you've died with Christ, you've died to yourself. And therefore, the sin itself, the license sometimes will create this idea of just diminishing, to diminishing the severity of sin. Well, I can just, we can just kind of tolerate it. Kind of tolerate it in our lives. Be careful that we don't just tolerate sin in our lives. And I say that to myself as much as anyone here. But also license comes when we try to redefine what God says is good. We looked at uh, Romans 1, 18 through 22, about just the nature of what the world does and how they've rejected um, the, the good creation of God. And, uh, and, and you saw there in verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed against heaven unto all ungodliness and unrighteousness, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. But we, didn't, we need to pick up back up in verse 23 from that and read down through 32. They've exchanged the glory of God for, of a mortal God for the images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. We ended there last week. Therefore God gave them up in their lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonor of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty of their error. It's not easy to read, is it? 
verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought, what, what ought not to be done. And they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree, they... Um, that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, oh boy, they give approval to those who practice them. So what is plain to them, they reject. Friends, I pray this never happens in the life of a believer, but it can. I believe it has. I believe there are people who will find later on in life might be genuine believers, but they fall into the lie that they can redefine what God says is good. I hope that's not the case. It's not something we should, we, should, we should mess around with too awful much. Because ultimately what God says is good is for our good. The way God says things are and design things are the way it should be. And it's for our good. So as we finish up this morning, I want to commend something that I have found, and I'm hoping I can get a few copies of this eventually down in the lot, down in the cafe. We'll, we'll see soon, but... The Bookends of the Christian Life by Jerry Bridges. And in this little book, he builds out the entire picture of sanctification on two axes. One is the axis of our justification. The other axis is on the work of the Holy Spirit. Sanctification is, the, is this intersection of Jesus' justification for you outside of yourself and the Holy Spirit's ongoing work of preserving you. It's the, it's the axis point between those two. That's where your sanctification rests. So then I say that to you because at the end of the day, that's where I want us to land the plane this morning. If you want to understand your sanctification, if I want to grow in my sanctification, it's going to come by those two means. Constant growth and delight in the work of justification that has been accomplished by my Savior Jesus and trusting in the ongoing power of the Holy Spirit in me. I cooperate with that. That's cooperation. It's not every manner of new methods that I need to come up with to protect myself from sin, although those can be good from time to time. But it is, cooperation is always in remembrance of who Jesus is and trusting in who the Holy Spirit is. Yes? That's what it means to be sanctified, that your God in heaven, decree that you be saved before the foundations of the world. He sent his son Jesus to accomplish that and work for you. And he put, er, puts the Holy Spirit in you and I to preserve us until the very end. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray.